views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Welcome to Political Prisoner Radio. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting from behind these enemy lines. Of course, I'm joined by the co-host and co-producer of Political Prisoner Radio, that's Sister Amija. Today we do, or I should say tonight, we do have a guest, and we're not going to talk about any particular political prisoner tonight, any particular uh, case tonight, but we're just going to talk about political prisoners in general. Uh, Sister Ophelia Wangaza, a longtime attorney activist, and she's also a radio broadcaster. Political Prisoner Radio does broadcast live down there on the uh, low, uh, low Power FM station WMXP in Greenville, South Carolina. So uh, she's fighting the propaganda wars through the through the media, just like we do. And she'll join us tonight, but she has been a longtime advocate for political prisoners. She recently uh, was in Geneva to discuss uh, political prisoners at the at a U.N. conference. And so she contacted me last week and just, you know, this is Black August and wanted to come on and speak about all of our political prisoners in general. Now, I have also linked to uh, a petition by the Jericho Movement, uh, which I also linked to their website, uh, for the release of COINTELPRO political prisoners, which, you know, if you're a regular listener of Political Prisoner Radio, you know what COINTELPRO is. If you do not know what it is or what it was, uh, it stands for Counterintelligence Program, and the FBI uh, under J. Edgar Hoover created this program to specifically target uh, black uh, formations in the community like the Black uh, Panther Party for self-defense. And it specifically said that it was targeting it not because they were out, out there gunning down cops or fighting a violent revolution, not to say they wouldn't wouldn't have been justified if they were, but no, they were engaged in helping to fight the very issue that is dominating the headlines today, at least among black people, and that is police brutality and violence. But they also had a whole bunch of community programs and outreach, and J. Edgar Hoover named them Feeding Children. Feeding children because then, you know, the masses will find these people cred- credible and listen to their political message when these people are meeting their phys- physical needs. So uh, he viewed that as the number one threat to the security, but not the security of the United States, but the security of white supremacy and, and white supremacists. So without further delay, I do want to uh, um, say hello tonight to our co-host and co-producer, Sister Mijo. Uh How are you doing tonight, sis? Good evening, Scotty. Good evening to you as well. 
um before we get into the broadcast i'm gonna start doing this at the beginning if you don't mind um sister Amijo, unless we're going to get in details in these prisoners case but our political prisoners birthdays that we like to announce when there's an upcoming birthday during the, the uh, new week and malik shakur latin uh had a birthday today as well as russell maroon schultz and i have posted um their information if you would like to write them in today's broadcast page and you can also check it out in the podcast so we just want to well um say you know uh recognize it i mean it just feels stupid of me to say something like happy birthday because they're not in a happy place i'm gonna just keep it real you know what i'm saying sister amigo but we do want to recognize their birth Okay, we want to recognize their birth and their contribution to the people, uh, and that's the reason why they are in such an unhappy place right now, being held as political prisoners by the United States government and, of course, the individual states that make up the corporation that I call USA Inc. So, sis, did you have any opening uh, commentary or statements you'd like to make to the listening audience before we're joined by Sister Afia? Um, no, I mean, let's get right into it. Well, yes, let's get get right into it. So um, about how many political prisons do you estimate there are being held by the United States? Oh, gosh, um, that we know of, uh, at least 200 that we know of. Um, what we don't know of are a lot of the um, in, our international you know, uh, radical brothers and sisters that are being held in, in black sites and at military bases, you know, run by the, the United we need States. To count those as well. You're saying count those that's run by the United States, right? Oh, 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 right. absolutely. You know, um, because that's, that's, that's an extension. And it's right. another reason why, you know, when we talk about political prisoners, we need to talk about political prisoners in an international context. Mm-hmm. And I think like this is, you know, the reason, you know, and, and I guess a good segue into, you know, this conversation with uh, Sister Afia because, you know, we can't, you know, look at our political prisoners as some, something separate, you know, from political mm-hmm. prisoners, you know, all around the world that are dealing with, you know, um, the very same issues that we're dealing with. They're fighting against, you, you know, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the same things. You know, I was even thinking about that today on the domestic side, the domestic struggle, the ongoing century-long struggle of non-white people on this continent for freedom. And I was thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, and, you know, it's not the first time I thought about it, but, I mean, I feel like, you know, the reason that I do not really co-sign on to naming the movement Black Lives Matter. It's not because I'm anti-black. Obviously, I'm not anti-black because then it kind of like separates your lives from everybody else that's being gunned down and stuff. You know, it's often cited that black people disproportionately are the number one targets of police violence, and that's simply not true. If we want to talk about disproportionality, we have to uh, put the Native Indians number one, wouldn't you say? Right. I mean, they're, they're disproportionate race that they're suffering at, man. It's like, you know, it's out of this world. But, you know, I think like the program we did with the activists about a week or so ago, it might have been last week, uh, we had a couple of Native American activists 
on the program and I guess behind the scenes there are efforts to combine the movements to combine to combine the war effort against a common oppressor and that's all I'm saying but even in terms of Black Lives Matter okay if you want to keep it in the framework or the purview of just simply working on black issues then you know that movement needs to evolve to where it's talking about what Sister Phil be coming on to talk about putting pressure on on an international level and within here of the uh, country domestically and recognize the political prisoners that's being held because we know for a fact that members of the current uh, period of uprising uh, today are considered political prisoners, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's why I'm saying we need to understand the history. We need to understand the continuum and we need to, you know, put everything in a local, national and international um, context. And I think that that's where oftentimes, um, you know, sometimes people fall short and even understanding you know, um, international law and, and the rights that, you know, um, a lot of people don't understand that they know that they have on an international level. Um, a lot of people don't. Okay. Uh, Hello? I- Yes, uh, thank you for joining us. I do believe we have our scheduled speaker on the line, Sister Afia Wangaza. Do we have you, sis? You do indeed. Thank you for joining us tonight, and thank you for reaching out. You know, it's still Black August, even though we focus on, and you, of course, and others focus on political prisoners. Uh, 365, you know, uh, we're raising those issues, but, you know, it is Black August, and so could you just tell people, you know, the importance of, or how, you know, um, what Black August means to you? I guess it's the simplest way I could ask the question that will also educate listeners who don't know what Black August is. Black August is an opportunity to celebrate the um, militant tradition that uh, uh, the struggle for uh, black liberation that we ought to be observing and practicing uh, 365 days in the year. It, it kind of reminds me of Kwanzaa, you know, that we practice in Guzo Saba 365 days a year and celebrate them um, uh, for seven days so that the um, that we're, we have established a standard of ethics and a code of conduct that uh, moves us forward in the struggle to realize our freedom and liberation and our, our independence. Black August gives us an opportunity to recognize individuals who have contributed to the struggle and um, perhaps and even more importantly, quite frankly, is to recognize the efforts of us as a people. When we look at August over the centuries, we find that uh, Many major events of significance occurred in August. Um, uh, Enslaved African uprisings in particular, um, Nat Turner, Denmark, V.C., Gabriel Prosser, the rebellions, the modern urban rebellions uh, occurring uh, largely in August. So, Black August has come to mean to me not just the um, 
recognition of some of our people, but to recognize the people's participation in the struggle to realize our independence, our freedom, our um, uh, opportunity to realize our, our potential as uh, full human beings. And it's in that, that light that um, I think that we have to begin to talk about the larger issue of political prisoners, prisoners of war, um, and political exiles. Uh, you know, when we look at uh, the Palestinian people um, specifically, which I view as um, the model of the day, we always hear about um, political prisoners but we rarely hear about individuals. Um, so I, I think that there's something for us to learn from that, um, and which allows us to rehumanize, decriminalize, and contextualize those who stepped forward and um, took actions on, on our behalf. I, my dad I'm, he I'm hearing some feedback. Are you getting feedback? Um, I'm hearing something coming off the uh, the background. The background. Uh, it's not my line. Uh, but we'll work through it. We'll work through it. Okay. So I I think that um a part of of our challenge as um for the Black Liberation Movement is, um, as I said, to rehumanize, decriminalize, and contextualize um, uh, those who stepped forward and um, acted on our, uh, on our behalf. I think that it's, it's critical that um, they are recontextualized or contextualized um, because it's in that context, uh, by making it, making, putting them within the context of the liberation struggle slash civil rights movement, that our people, um, it, the larger masses of our people identify with them, um, associate with them, and on that basis are willing to work for them. Mm -hmm. The um, political prisoner movement and the issue um has become is uh, so prior so proprietary that's the term that I'm looking for has become so proprietary that um it's almost uh, become a private matter in our community unlike um the Puerto Rican community where it is a community wide issue um, whether folk agree with it or not, at least there is a significant percentage of the community that is aware of it. Um, and again, going back to the Palestinian uh, model, they, they can't help but be broadly uh, aware of it since it's the, the, the depth and the intensity of the assault on that community is so much... Um, more deeply ingrained in the the life of the of the people. Although, if we include social prisoners, or as I coined uh, when I began talking to children, we've done children's Kwanzaa um, for more than 35 years here in South Carolina, 
and um, one of the activities for the children is to send greetings to political prisoners. And in explaining that to who, who or what a political prisoner is, we um, coined the term um, prisoners of politics, political prisoners, prisoners of war, and the, the differences between those so that they could begin to understand the difference between uh, a relative or a friend who might be in prison um, as a result of policies made, of course, in, in child-appropriate language, like, um, as compared with someone who was in prison because they got arrested for a sit-in or they got um, even higher that they got arrested because they stopped the police from killing somebody in our community. So in very graphic child children's language. Um, so that if we begin to broaden our focus and um, recognize the, the use of the state apparatus in its various forms, on its various levels, um, then we began to also broaden the movement and begin to uh, enlarge the number of people who are uh, not only interested uh, and impacted, but who are willing to work in response to it. Recently, we, we joined forces with a group called hearts for inmates and when we had that same discussion with them and they began to understand that we're, that we're talking about people who are impacted by a system um, that has its own pigeonholes and its own categories that we have to begin to treat differently uh, and see differently then um, they were ready to, to say yeah we need to work for them as well. We need to include them in our agenda. And I, I think that that's, uh, we're all challenged to move to that point. Well, there should be um, some natural, um, well, see, this is what I'm concerned about. Right now, all those people that you're talking about that needs to do the work or be recruited to do the work and energize the, you know, the movement and whatnot is is that they're already out there. They're calling themselves either Black Lives Matter or We the Protesters. And, you know, they've been organizing in these various cities wherever a, a uh, execution happens by the police. And and so, but the, I'm not seeing the natural connections, you know, uh, mm -hmm. when you contacted me last week, you, you was like, you know, we must keep up the pressure, you know, for, uh, you know, the um, on the U.S. government to release our political prisoners. And, and so those people out there battling issues in the street right now, those people confronting politicians right now. Um, right now, they, you know, are pretty much d disconnected from the political prisoners, even though, um, you know, they may not even see themselves, those out there right now getting arrested, having to get bailed out of jail and stuff like that from having these die-ins and blocking traffic. They may not even see themselves as political prisoners. And, and so oh, they do. Oh, do they, they do? Do they? Well, that well, of course, you work with those in Baltimore, you know, on, on the ground there. Uh, because y'all had an uprising, but you know the ones that's on, we're getting a lot of background noise. I don't know what that is. 
looks like somebody's outside. <laughs> uh, Sister Omidja, is that your line? Yes, mute me, please. Uh, I'm unable to mute you. I can put you on hold. You would have to be able to mute yourself. Okay. Um, so, yeah, what I was saying, Sister Ophelia, was that we should, you know, there needs to be a better effort of putting these political prisoners, and I'm talking about specifically COINTELPRO, because these people are dying, it seems like every week, you know what I'm saying? Well, not every week, but every year okay. we're losing yeah, another political. like every week, yeah, before you can get over one and you're hearing, hearing about someone else, and that brings us to... Let me say uh, that I do agree with um, Amijo that um, at least the, the uh, a significant percentage of the folk who are getting arrested now recognize um, themselves as political prisoners. However, I think that there's some question about whether or not it's important that they view themselves in the technical language of political prisoners as opposed to knowing that they are being arrested because they engage in political activities. Um, when we were getting arrested for sit-ins and other uh, demonstrations, um, forms of resistance, we didn't call ourselves political prisoners um at that time, you know, we we were like draft resistors, mm -hmm. um, anti-war demonstrators. I, I'm not sure that, except in certain very uh, formal situations, that that is a requirement. That 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 that's essential for people to be able to move forward. You know, we had the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, without a doubt. Those kids didn't know that they were political prisoners. They knew that they were fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think sometimes we get caught up in language. Now, when in certain forums, when we're talking about going to the United Nations, or we're going to other international forums, or even when we're in um, U.S. courts, then the technical language uh, takes on uh, more significance. You and mean the language using political important. prisoner. The term political but, prisoner takes on more. Um, yeah, I, I, I hear what I hear what you're saying. But this, I'm glad you brought that up. For example, you had Trayvon Martin's parents. I think the family of Rakia Boyd, and you had some others that recently went to the U, UN um, and mm -hmm. were presenting the case about police brutality. But not that I heard, and, and, and you would certainly be more informed than me about it, but from what I read, the articles written about it, the presentations themselves that were posted online, I still did not see the connection being made back that this is a continuous struggle. You know, this goes back even to the 1960s. Look, we got people in prison today, solitary confinement, 40 years for fighting against police brutality. I'm not seeing that those people being included in the arguments to bring up present day police terrorism. And I think that's, I think, that's, a, that's not I right. I think you have to keep, I, I think you have to hear what you just said, what, what you were, what you're reading, what you're hearing. You're, but when you read my report, um, the campaign that began in 2010 to put and keep 
COINTELPRO civil rights era political prisoners on the global human rights agenda, that connection is made. Sister Alfia, you you misunderstood me. You misunderstood me. Let me just clarify. You are a political prisoner advocate, have been for a very long time. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about Sister Mijo. I'm not talking about Sister Pauline or, I mean, Paulette. I'm not talking about Jericho. I'm not talking about any of the organizations that for decades have been working on political prisoner issues. I'm talking about the, the, the new, if we, the new activists. Like I said, Trayvon Martin's parents, the, uh, you know, they, she, I, people would consider her an activist. She traveled all over the country. She went to the UN to, to talk about the, uh, police brutality and the killing of her son and others. And they are not making that connection is what I'm saying. They are not including these prisoners who are political, nor calling for their release. They just talking about the, the problem. That's what I'm saying. I- uh, and I agree with you, and it re- 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 reflects the underdevelopment, which mm-hmm. is what I started off earlier right. talking about, was the language of struggle. Um, and when we look at the Palestinian model, it is thoroughly incorporated in the language of struggle of the Palestinian people. When we look at um, the Puerto Rican uh, struggle, the language of struggle includes the release of the independistas. Mm-hmm. My apologies for butchering that word. But there is enough popular consciousness for it to have been included. I think apart, apart from the corporate media, media which um, are no more than scriveners for the government, we can hardly expect them to begin to use our language um, when we're not fully using it ourselves. There was a big brouhaha this past week that um, last Sunday the New York Times referred to the rape of Julian Bond's great-grandmother as uh, her being a mistress as opposed to being uh, a rape victim. Now, it was there was a great hue and cry, and that got... Uh, turned around, and I understand that uh, in today's New York Times, it was an apology and a correction. And yes, it would indeed be great if um, references were never made to COINTELPRO civil rights era um, political prisoners was made that it was that they were referred to in the manner that we referred to them. But that again becomes a part of the work that we do and a part of that as uh, as I've approached it has been to use that language in all formal documents. Um it's only really just begun being used in our language, COINTEL and when I say our I mean in the political prisoner community, um, which has adopted the phrase that I coined, COINTELPRO civil rights era, um, imprisoned COINTELPRO civil rights era, political activists, uh, human rights defenders, political prisoners, which appears in all of the um, UN documents from over the past five years since uh, November um, 2010 when the the, uh, 
campaign was first in, instituted within the or included in the in the documents was began in that uh, in the in the spring. Um, so I, you know, it's our popularizing that language. Also, um, I think that young Sister people, Ophelia, if you could hold on to the other side of the break, we're at the uh, halfway hour. We want to take our station identification break. You're listening okay. to Political Prisoner Radio. Our guest tonight is Sister Ophelia on Gaza. Of course, I'm joined by our co-host, Sister Amijo. You're you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back. from the Black Talk Radio Network. This is Nestor Garcia speaking from Havana, Cuba. And what I want to tell you is that you have all our solidarity on your fight for the several political prisoners that have been held by the U.S government, our comrades, and we will fight for the social, political, and human rights of the masses in your country, and we are ready to help you in all the ways we can. So count on us for all your campaign and for all the things you want to do for the freedom of your people and the freedom of the political prisoners. On you are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome welcome again to Political Prisoner Radio. We broadcast this program every Sunday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And we talk about U.S. held political prisoners and prisoners of war. Um, who have basically been disappeared from the masses uh, by way of uh, mainstream media, which will have you believe that these people don't even exist. And so that is why we do this program. Um, I just thought about something. Sister Sister Ophelia, uh, Cuba, Cuba and the United States have normalized um, uh, relations. Um, U.S. just opened up an embassy down there in Cuba. Cuba has opened up its embassy. I just played a clip from a listener of Black Talk Radio Network speaking on political prisoners and, and saying how Cubans want to help with the political prisoners. Do you see that happening? Do you see that now with the normalization of relations be you know, through diplomacy, do you think that perhaps that's a, a a good thing for our political prisoners? Do you think they will continue to be advocates to for the release of these political prisoners? I, I absolutely, I do, I do, and and I I was very disappointed that my junior partners and their advisors uh, were unable to hold the line that I established um, five years ago with the UPR Universal Periodic Review of the United States, wherein um, I was able to get the Cuban government to recommend, because that's what the, the, the technical language, it's a, it's a demand, but it's um, listed as a recommendation that the United States release all political prisoners um, 
first, the Cuban Five, all of whom have at this point been released. And secondly, in its second recommendation or demand, was the release of all uh, uh, political prisoners, including uh, uh, Mamia Abu-Jamal and uh, Lena Peltier. They were joined by the Venezuelan government in that demand, with the Venezuelan government adding the call for the repeal of the, the section of the 14th Amendment, which allowed for involuntary servitude. So the, Did you say the, the 14th or the 13th? The you meant the 13th. 13th, I'm sorry. No 13th. problem. Um, so we, we have a baseline. The question is, is whether or not we are going to be able to uh, unite the, the efforts, in fact, unite the efforts of political prisoner activists in order to give substance and to advance the um, progress that has been made up until this this point in time. And I, when I say up until this point in time, I don't just limit it to the five years that I uh, have launched and maintained the campaign to put and keep uh, U.S. political prisoners, COINTEL, pro-civil rights era political prisoners on the global human rights agenda, but the history, beginning with, um, at a minimum, J um, Jaleel Montekin's call uh, back in 79, if my memory serves me correctly, um, that was then taken up by uh, Leonard Hines and others and carried to the United Nations, and then again, my picking it up, um, through the U.S. Human Rights Network in um, December of 2009 when I called for and formed the um, U.S. Political Prisoner State Repression Working Group. So if we can, can, in fact, build on the work that has been done, is being done in a coordinated strategic fashion, I think that there's some something to be said and something to be gained from that, most notably to um, advance the the support that has already been established and that what the line, baseline that uh, I was able to establish with the Cuban government calling for the release of political prisoners um, in 2010, joined by the Venezuelan government and the repeal of the uh, clause in the 13th Amendment which permits uh, volu uh, involuntary servitude. So I, I call would, it slavery. Um, Why you call it involuntary servitude? I call it slavery, sister. Of fear. Well, because, well, because it's in the Constitution. I'm using the language of the Constitution. But it, it the says that. It the, says the, slavery in there. It says it. Involuntary servitude and slavery shall be abolished except for punishment for crime where a party has been duly convicted by a jury of his peers. That's, exactly, it's, and, yes, and right. I'm using the, the language of the Constitution and the language in the the recommendation. Okay. Um, and you will forgive my um, habit of speaking legalese because for so many years of practice. Oh, I, I understand, but that's that's what Venezuela, because you are the one that sent me the news 
where we were able to, um, you know, report on uh, Venezuela uh, calling for the full repeal of the 13th Amendment. And uh, because it allows for the practice of slavery, they called it slavery. They didn't call it involuntary servitude. They also said that the immigrants um, were being enslaved and through agriculture. They called that slavery, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. That is correct. So and then from uh, from the UPR, Universal Periodic Review, recommendations made by the Cuban and Venezuelan governments, mm-hmm. I've been able to, over the five years to build on that uh, with the, the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, mm-hmm. uh, wherein the United States was again called upon to address the issue of political prisoners. And while it was not specifically um, a call for uh, treatment of political, quote-unquote, political prisoners, it did in in its list of issues, uh, paragraph number 16, specifically call for the end of prolonged, quote-unquote, prolonged cellular isolation um, which of course is solitary confinement, right. and the mm-hmm. reference at that time was to Herman Wallace, and um, the United States was severely upbraided um, for and uh, the fact that uh, and shamed for the fact that Herman Wallace had been held in, in solitary confinement for over forty years and died four days after his release. I mean, the committee was fully apprised of that, those facts and took them into account and made that a part of the official record. Do you think that, that had any um, bearing on President Obama's recent vis- visit to a supermax? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Do you think the international pressure that you just spoke about, that you was able to work with these these uh, uh, member nations of the United Nations to talk about these issues, do you think that you just said that they really got taken a task, you know, over it? And just here recently, we hear about President Obama visiting a supermax prison. Do you think that that pressure at the international level prompted that visit or you think it's totally unrelated? Oh, I, I do think that um, it was contributory. I don't think that there's any one thing that okay. um, uh, generates a response. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the United States historically has been deeply concerned about its international image. Right, and right. Barack Obama is particularly concerned in that he wants to be known as having been uh, an international president. He wants to be able to operate on the international, as uh, one person put it, uh, on the international stage when he leaves office in the same way that um, the other past presidents have, certainly Clinton um, and Carter, Bush and uh, to a, a significantly lesser lesser degree but um so he, he is especially concerned and he he has started out his um his his terms dealing with international issues i mean the first thing that he did 
when he, um, after he was sworn in, was to sign the executive order to close Guantanamo. That, of course, is a function of international and domestic pressure. So we see him doing that across the board, given the fact that the United States imprisons more people than any other country. And as he put it, a key, being a Kenyan American and thus um, a person of African descent and the African community most directly impacted by mass incarceration, wants to be able to say to the rest of the world, I see it, I'm doing something about it. You know, one of the, um, just to cite an, uh, an other example of U.S. concern is the um, impact that uh, international pressure has had on the U.S. imposition of the death penalty. There's little or no publicity in this country about the fact that when Supreme Court justices go abroad and speak in other countries, when it is publicly known, there are demonstrations against them. The United States is embarrassed by that kind of confrontation and the undermining of its effort to present itself to the world as the gold standard for human rights. The change in the law that um, about juvenile uh, lifers, uh, juvenile life without possibility of parole, is a direct result from both activities within this country, demonstrations, lobbying, as well as litigation, and even more importantly, shaming uh, by others outside of this country, from uh, civil society to professional societies that confront U.S. the U.S. judiciary on the fact that they would rule that it is acceptable to sentence a 13-year-old to life in prison without uh, possibility of parole and claim to have a humane and civilized society. That is another example of, of current um, international pressure being brought to bear and being effective. And it was so clear that it was uh, international pressure that was brought to bear that there was a great discussion and uh, uproar in Congress and in uh, among conservative legal scholars about the quote-unquote um, uh, intervention or uh, or there was another term that they used to describe to protest uh, the impact. Judge Scalia, uh, Antonin Scalia, Justice, uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia um, specifically spoke to the issue saying that, that uh, international law had no impact and that other, the, what the practices in other countries um, have no bearing in the United States. But of course, at this point in time, we know that, uh, that it's discouraged to have uh, sentenced juveniles to uh, life without possibility of parole, and it has been ruled unconstitutional to subject them to the death penalty. So, yes, without a doubt. However, we cannot rest on that. We've on international pressure and um, from uh, civil society elsewhere and um, 
international mechanisms, we've got to raise the level of consciousness and um, popular education in this country across the board uh, on issues of human rights. The, the no notion of human rights is an over there kind of thing for people in this country. It's something that people in other countries need because the, in the United States there is the U.S. Constitution. Well, the U.S. Constitution, first of all, is not a human rights document. It's a commercial document. Um, <laughs> Say that again. It it's a commercial to... document. Is that what you said? A commercial document? Because I say it's a corporation. I mean, you know. Uh, totally. Yeah. Totally. USA Inc. Totally. Say it's not a human rights document. It's a commercial document produced that by a corporation. <laughs> designed to protect and promote the commercial interest of white male property owners. Mm -hmm. That is what the United States con uh, uh, Constitution is. And I would add white male property owners engaged in criminal activity. That is um, obtaining um, wealth by stolen land, the use of stolen land, stealing and using stolen land and stolen labor. So um, the, the United States itself is, is uh, nothing more than a, a criminal enterprise, an ongoing criminal enterprise protected by um, the U.S. Constitution. When we begin to look at and we get larger numbers of people looking at the structure and apparatus of the, the United States and relating to it in that way, and that is that they're not so awestruck, they're not so afraid of, they're not so um, obedient to, um, deferential to, then we can begin to get people to think about and talk about self-determination. And it's within the context of self-determination that people begin to understand and appreciate political prisoners. That political prisoners are not just, you know, cowboys, or ought not to be just cowboys out there on their own, um, but that they are operating out of the consensus that has been derived from the community. And as on that basis, the community then has an obligation to protect them, to um, take care of them, to uh, free them, ultimately to free them. So, I mean, it's, in some ways, we, we skipped uh, stages that we have to go back and, and fill in. Now, at the Cleveland Black Lives Matter um, conference, the, uh, recently there was a session, there were two sessions, in fact, on um, political prisoners. However, unfortunately, the, the, the discussion was not in the broader context of the movement for black liberation, and like it or not, folk have to accept the fact that um, the black liberation struggle is a part of the civil rights struggle, and, the, the, and, and that unless we're talking about them within that context, then um, we're going to continue to be isolated and uh, less effective, if not ineffective. The tradition of militant resistance 
has to be lifted up and it has to be lifted up within the context of the popular struggle. The truth is, is that when sit-ins were held, that was a militant action. It wasn't revolutionary uh, in a material sense, but it was a militant action. And it was an escalating uh, process that brought us to the, the to picking up the gun publicly because, you know, like it or not, the Black Panther Party was not the first group to pick up the gun. Right. Um, in fact, there were other groups that preceded them, laid the foundation, and were uh, even more effective in, in that regard. Um, so it's our failure, all of us in the larger sense, to know our history and to learn from that history. Malcolm said, of all of our studies, history uh, is best prepared to reward us. And we, we need to do a lot more, um, a, a lot more uh, study, disciplining ourselves to, to do a lot more study and understanding the lessons of history so that we're, in fact, building on it as opposed to, mm-hmm. uh, to countering it. Yeah, I want to bring it... I'm sorry, you was going to I'm say sorry. about the Black Lives Matter Cleveland Conference. What were you going to say? Yeah, and that was, and the other part of what I was going to say about it, and um, and that is, is the failure, their failure to uh, to allow the opportunity to make that con- connection um, between prisoners of of uh, politics and political prisoners. Um, the process that they used for establishing uh, workshops was a good process, but had its weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses is is that it played to sensationalism, um, and it played to uh, what folks were already familiar with and knew. Um, so it didn't have a have a workshop, although we could have done a self organized workshop on uh, what some people call social prisoners or prisoners of politics and created an opportunity to make that that connection. I would say that political prisoner workshops have to make that connection also. They're talking about the system of repression as opposed to um, the the, um, escapades of, um, of, of the day. Um, we have um, just a few minutes uh, more left, but speaking of BLM activists, uh, there since that conference, there has been from uh, a split among those who who attended that conference, and there is a new uh, website called JoinCampaignZero.org. JoinCampaignZero.org. Um, St. Louis. Most of these activists are based in uh, Missouri. Um, in the St. Louis area, some of them were on the ground in Ferguson, and so there's been a split in 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 a difference of approaching the issues. And they have like a website where they have policy solutions, but the thing that impressed me more kind of speaks to when you said, you know, at the conference they didn't um, really allow an avenue to make to bring up, you know, political prisoners of the past, uh, COINTELPRO. Uh, era no, prisoners. no, they did. Uh, 
no, that's that's inaccurate. You must understand me. There were two workshops that focused on uh, COINTELPRO, civil rights era, political prisoners. There was no, there were no workshops on social uh, prisoners. There were no workshops uh, on prisoners of politics. Um, and uh, no, which uh, is what drug war prisoners, drug war. Okay. Um, and and that environment um, was the perfect place to uh, begin making that connection um, in this generation. Um, and and what I was about to say was with regard to the the, the weakness of the the process that was used to establish workshops was that they um, there was no real opening because we, the workshop proposals were made and then they were voted on. Well, if you haven't in your mind already made the connection between prisoners of politics and political prisoners um, and, the, and the repressive state apparatus, then even one, uh, a social prisoners workshop listed would not have gotten the number of votes needed in order to be have been selected. So what was needed was a process where you have like in golf or in uh, sports where you have like wild cards where people can be invited um, even though they didn't meet other kind of criteria they may invite um, okay. folks to do to provide a certain workshop or to participate in a certain game in, in the case of sports in order to make sure that there are certain areas that are covered and included in the discussion. And I had contacted them for that purpose um, uh, belatedly, but when I saw that, that it wasn't included. So there are some of us who made that observation and, and took exception to it who are putting together a, a proposal to them to try and find some way to use that as a resource to be able to help to make that cross okay. that, uh, well, that well do right. check out but the website. Before we get away, I, I, I do want to raise um, what I did want, what I approached you about earlier uh, with regard to um, the next step in the uh, UN treaty review process and, and the need to have people involved uh, make input uh, in that process. Well, well, you do realize that we come to the end of the program. Ah, give me a minute. If people would contact me, ifiawangaza uh, at gmail.com, um, I will send out more information about that. The United States has come to its one-year re report back for on the Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And um, we want to make that connection between um, use of force, excessive use of force, which is one of the issues on which it is called upon to respond, making the connection between the excessive use of force and political prisoners in light of the fact that political prisoners are political prisoners for having confronted that issue uh, 30 and 40 years ago, and we need people to talk about what has happened or not happened in their local communities over the past 12 months 
that they believe would have been addressed had the uh, demands that have been made by persons who are now political prisoners representing various organizations, so, so, like Plants of Party and such, yeah. to, uh, to address that issue. So Again, tell them how they can contact you. At gmail.com. A field one Gaza at gmail.com. They can get that information. Exactly. All right. Well, well, thank you uh, for joining us again this week. Uh, certainly, I would like to uh, get that information and we can uh, discuss it in more detail uh, at a later date. All right. Thank you, Sister Ophia, and you be safe behind these enemy lines. Thank you both. Thank you. You have a good night. Um, Sister... Amigo, you got any final comments as we get ready to wrap it up? Uh, we have uh, the Lotus Place coming on at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, so y'all stay tuned for that. But Sister Amigo, did you have any comments? Okay. All right. Um, let's see. Again, political prisoner birthdays. Malik Shakur Latin. Um, his birthday was today, as well as Russell Maroon Schultz. I have linked to websites that give you more information um, about both of these political prisoners. And please check them out. Check them out. All right. So we will conclude this broadcast of Political Prisoner Radio. Recognize again that you live behind enemy lines. It's a war zone out there. Develop battlefield awareness so that you won't become a casualty. And never forget, never forget. You know, our African Holocaust, our black Holocaust, and it's ongoing. And many of the people who are on the front lines uh, as warriors fighting against our collective enemies are political prisoners. And so you must never forget them. Never forget them. Peace and blessings to all until next week. This is Political Prisoner Radio signing off. Thank you.